Readers of the book of Joshua have two difficult questions to answer. Number one, why did all the Israelites that left Egypt have to die if they doubted that God was capable of bringing them into the land of Canaan? Number two, why did the Israelites entering Canaan have to kill all of the Canaanites and utterly destroy them? The answer is found in thinking of Israel not as a nation, but as a person. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine, episode 18. This is the Old Testament uh, lesson, Be Strong and of a Good Courage. And that is advice that God gave three times to Joshua, the prophet who followed Moses. Now, it, it much like following any tough act to follow, Joshua had his work cut out for him. Everyone loved Moses. They'd seen Moses not only converse with the Lord, but they'd seen the glory of God shining directly from the face of Moses. Many people had had experiences where they had witnessed God speaking to Moses or heard the voice of God thundering to Moses or heard other people testify that God had testified of Moses. But Joshua had one thing going for him, which um, in, in Joshua chapter 3, verse 7 God says to Joshua, as I was with Moses, so will I be with thee. And this helps us to, I mean, this this lesson is still ongoing today, which is what happens when a beloved prophet dies, or any beloved person, any beloved example, someone who serves the Lord and teaches valuable lessons, how do we allow someone else take that mantle and carry on. And we will we'll discuss this further in depth. There's a there's a wonderful lesson coming up uh, where Elisha takes up the mantle of Elijah. And that's a powerful lesson as well. But we in in modern times we have the example of Brigham Young taking over from Joseph Smith. Uh, and I've thought often about this when you when you pray for a testimony of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, most people start by reading the Book of Mormon, and they get a feeling that it's true, and then they read it some more. Eventually, they gain a witness that it's true. And this is important, this is very important, but is it enough? It probably it's it's probably wonderful and it's probably enough for for many if not most of the challenges that you'll face in your life. However, you might come there might come a time when you think, yes, the Book of Mormon. I know that it's true. I've prayed about it. I've felt the Spirit testify to me of it, and therefore I know that Joseph Smith was a prophet. He was a prophet at the time he brought forth the Book of Mormon. Now, Satan might bring in some doubts, and one of those doubts could be, did Joseph Smith continue as a prophet? Because there were people in the time of Joseph Smith who said that he had been a prophet and that he had fallen from grace. And then another question could be, okay, Joseph Smith was a prophet, and he was until the end of his life, 
but was Brigham Young the right successor to Joseph Smith? And there are entire offshoots of the church that have a difference of opinion on that question. So I'm not, I'm not saying you should have doubts on those questions. What I'm saying is it's worthwhile to seek a witness of those questions as well. It's worthwhile to wonder, how can I feel the Spirit testifying to me? Not only did, did Joseph Smith translate the Book of Mormon through the gift and power of God, but Joseph Smith remained faithful to the light that God had given him to his original revelation in the sacred grove. And when Brigham Young was sustained by the majority of the members of the church, that was God's will. Those are important witnesses to have too. And the strongest people in the gospel today not only have a witness of the Book of Mormon, but a witness of the continuing revelation of the church. And that's what allows you to believe that Russell M. Nelson is a prophet today, is that that authority has continued. Well, this is the same challenge that the Israelites faced. Is Joshua really the prophet the same way that Moses was? This question wasn't, or let me put it this way, the answer that any particular Israelite came up with to this question wasn't a statement about Joshua. It was a statement about that person. Were they willing to see what God saw in the prophet that God chose? We'll talk about all the wonderful and miraculous things that Joshua did. Uh, but first, let's let's uh, do a little housekeeping. I had, uh, had a few messages from listeners this week. Most of them were um, wondering if I would catch up to the the church's schedule for uh, gospel doctrine lessons. And I, so I'm actually very grateful for those because if there's any kind of lesson that, or any kind of message that I um, am flattered to get, it's that people want, want more of what, what we're delivering here at gospel doctrine. So uh, thank you for those. And yes, we are going to catch up. Um, it's been, for me, it's been a personal journey to, do these lessons every week. Um, I'm learning a lot about not only the gospel, but, but, but about myself and the amount of discipline that it takes to, to produce and release uh, this much audio, this much content every single week. And obviously we haven't done it every single week, but most weeks we have. And um, so I'm grateful for your patience, but I'm also grateful, very grateful that you're all listening. Um, so thank you for those. If you want to get in touch with us on the show, and that is to complain that I'm not delivering fast enough, um, and I'm, I'm kidding. Um, I'm very flattered by those messages. And uh, Or if it's to ask questions about one of the lessons that's gone by or one that's coming up, uh, anything doctrinal, especially if it pertains to one of our Gospel Doctrine lessons, um, then feel free. Email the show, Gospel doctrine.com is our domain name gt at gospeltoctrine.com that's the email to the show so let's uh, let's discuss the questions that that I opened the show with first of all in the wilderness of Sinai Joshua was one of two men Caleb was the other who returned from scouting the land of Canaan and the land of Canaan had been promised to Abraham 
400 years, 400 some odd years earlier. And so it was a commandment that the Israelites would go in and possess it. And Joshua and Caleb knew that it was a commandment, and they also knew what Nephi knew, which was if God had commanded them to do it, then he would figure out a way for them to do it, even though it might look difficult. And they saw the inhabitants, the other scouts saw the inhabitants of Canaan and said, they're larger than us, they're mightier than us, they're... and we can guess that they were wealthier, obviously, because they were living in established cities and civilizations rather than in the wilderness, and so then perhaps they had better weapons, etc. They had fortresses, and uh, we'll see exactly what God was capable of doing with those fortresses shortly. But only at that time, only Caleb and Joshua of the twelve sent could come back and say, yeah, God, God will deliver them into our hands. The rest of the ten said, uh, they're, they're too big for us, we can't do it, everyone, and every, all the Israelites listened to them. And so God swore that that generation would pass away. Now, this was necessary, and uh, we'll talk about why. So God needed to wait for all of those people to die. And from our perspective, from a modern-day perspective, there is a lot of death, physical death, in the Old Testament. And this is just one example. Then what was the commandment? So they doubted that God was capable of delivering to them the land of Canaan. The commandment was that they would go and not only occupy the land, but they had to utterly destroy the nations that currently occupied it. And so what we're talking about is more death. And it's very interesting. So we, from a modern perspective, we look at that and we say, this is an awful lot of death. Does God really love these people? How can God treat them this way? Isn't this weird? Um, we, we, and I discussed a lot of that um, last week and the week before. But uh, so now we're talking specifically about the death aspect. Why is there so much death in the Old Testament? Well, in these, in these two examples, for these two questions, God is trying to... Let's, let's think about Israel. God's trying to get us to think about Israel, not as a nation, but as a person. And that is a very worthwhile, it's a very profitable way to look at this lesson. And the first indicator we have of that is back way back in Exodus, in chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, when uh, God tells Moses, you're going to go into Pharaoh and you're going to say, let my people go because Israel is my firstborn son. And if you don't let my, if you kill my firstborn son, then I'm going to kill your firstborn son. And that was actually a commandment to Moses before he went into Pharaoh. We don't have a record of Moses keeping that commandment. So perhaps Moses was to... Uh, was not faithful enough to go in and actually say those words to Pharaoh, or perhaps he did and we didn't. We don't have it recorded. But that would have been a very uh, bold statement by Moses to go in and say, I'm going to kill your firstborn son to the king. But 
God te- made the same testimony about Israel. Israel is my firstborn son. In other words, I've chosen this nation. And there have been a lot of people who resent Jews. In fact, it's the biggest reason for mistreatment of Jews and for anti-Semitism, which is that the Jews feel like they've been chosen. And in fact, the Jews were chosen by God. Now, later in other places in the scriptures, we have this testimony that God is no respecter of persons. And it's not impossible to see how both of those things can be true. How one group of people can be chosen, and yet God is no respecter of persons. Uh, we have to accept the idea that God's judgment is a fair judgment. In fact, that there is not the slightest ounce of unfairness in it. And the way we do that is by accepting the doctrine that we not only lived before this life, but we will continue to live after this life. And there are some people who have tasks to perform on this earth. They have purposes that they came charged with that they were grateful to agree to. And some of those some of those were to be part of the chosen people. Some of those were to be part of their enemies. And God, we can presume, God made promises to those people that he would make those things right. That those paths held the way for those for each person born into this world to receive their maximum glory. And that's still true today. Today, in today's world, there's not one people that have been chosen. As Latter-day Saints, we're not the chosen people. We have, we have a very sacred obligation, which is to take the gospel to everyone, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Now, Ephraim, the tribe of Israel to which most Latter-day Saints belong, has that special duty. But it doesn't mean that Latter-day Saints are better people. They have better principles, and they're charged to share them. Uh, It was a little different for the Jews because although they were, uh, they encouraged converts, they they weren't sent to convert everyone. They They were sent to kill them. So, Israel is God's firstborn son. God, as, as we discussed, God was trying to create the only righteous nation in the world at that time. And it was such a fragile thing. It was, they, the Israelites were on the knife's edge of righteousness and wickedness. And they had to be so vigilant. It's almost like an addict where if you if you take an addict and and put him or her through rehab and until they're clean and and perhaps they have better habits and they have learned to leave behind the substances that once held them so enthralled and then you put them back into their former life with their former friends and maybe they have a job or they have a school situation that drove them into their addiction in the first place, if you put them back into that same life, the chances that they're going to stay drug-free or alcohol-free are extremely low, uh, especially the friends part of it. So those friends were not likely to be people who were handling all the details of their lives with responsibility. They were likely to be 
into the same addiction, they were likely to be people who enabled that addiction. And so think of Israel as a, as a person. It's God's firstborn son. And God realizes Israel has weaknesses. And before Israel can enter the promised land, and when we can look at this as a person going through their eternal progression, through an earthly life, and then into the celestial kingdom, which is the promised land, or it's represented by the promised land. Before a person can do that, they have to cleanse the inner vessel. They have to take the wickedness out of themselves. And, and that was symbolized by Israel waiting in the wandering in the wilderness while the generation that refused to believe God would would empower them, died out. And they had to... God used physical death, and and the word death, uh, we understand physical death very clearly because we see it so as, as being the ultimate fin- finality in our existence. Everyone understands how awful physical death is, but God uses physical death as a symbol for spiritual death. And in, in this case, he's showing us how seriously he takes it when we are separated from him, which is spiritual death. It's worse. The lesson of the book of Joshua is that spiritual death is much worse than physical death. And that's because God is willing to put a lot of people to death, physical death, in order to prevent spiritual death. So you can see from the examples in the book of Joshua the relative severity of physical death and spiritual death. One of them, to God, is no big deal. It's a doorway into another kind of existence. And one of them is a permanent separation. As Amulek said, after the day of this life, then come then cometh the night wherein no labor can be performed. So for God, spiritual death is the big deal, and physical death is not. Okay, second question is, why did they have to go in and kill everyone? So first they had to cleanse the inner vessel, and then they have to remove the wicked influences from their life. And again, going back to the addict analogy, you would, instead of sending the addict back into their former life with former friends, you would you would find a new environment for them, one where they had meaningful work, where they had relationships that were honest and up, uplifting. Uh, if you had a religious practice with that addict, you would surround that person with people who would support that practice rather than people who would drag it down. And you would also take a good look at all of the people in that addict's life and say, who is enabling? Who is making it possible for this person to continue their addiction rather than to get free of it? Who is taking responsibility for all the ways in which this person was dropping their their duties? And so in the case of Israel, that were that was the nations around them. And the biggest sin that God said and and the charge that he gives first of all to Joshua is you you have to finish the works of Moses. And the biggest problem is going to be if 
the people of and God and God said, I the Lord will clear out every nation before you, but if the people of Israel take their daughters to, to your sons as wives to your sons, or give your daughters to as wives to their sons, then I won't do it. And uh, so that is that is a wonderful metaphor that Israel is a person and first God has them cleanse the inner vessel and then God has them remove sinful elements from around them so that they can purify themselves. And in fact, that's what Joshua says early on in his service as prophet, right after just a few days after Moses is called up into Mount Nebo, and something that I wish I had mentioned last week. Uh, God doesn't, God doesn't um, wait around for Moses to die of old age. He says, Moses, you can, you've given uh, the book of Deuteronomy, you've given uh, a review of all of your teachings to the nation of Israel. And now I want you to walk up onto Mount Nebo. You can look over into the promised land and then you're going to die there. And in, uh, in the Joseph Smith translation, we have that he was called up into heaven instead. And that is how Mo- Moses was able to appear in the flesh on the Mount of Transfiguration because he had never died. He still had his body and confer the keys that he had in his lifetime on Jesus. Well, uh, it's just an interesting story because you can still go there. The, the place is almost certainly known within a few hundred yards and you can stand at the top of Mount Nebo there's a there's a museum there now and you can look over in modern day Jordan into modern day Israel across the river Jordan and it's right up up a hill from the baptism place of Jesus and several other uh interesting historical sites so it's quite a uh that's near the city of Madaba that's quite a, a dramatic trip to go on um, but I meant to mention that last time. And then just a few days later, uh, Joshua is telling the people of Israel, all right, now we're ready. This time you've been waiting 40 years for, it's finally come. And in, in verse, let's see, verse 5 of, of Joshua chapter 3, Joshua says, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And again, the if you look at Israel as a person, sanctify yourself. Uh, take the sacrament. Renew your covenants. Make sure that you're always remembering God. And we'll talk a little bit more about remembering. But um, and it even says after they after they cross into Israel. This is the one of the last chapters in the book of Joshua. But you've you've all heard the scripture. Choose ye this day whom you will serve. After he makes this covenant with Israel, um, it says Joshua established an ordinance. And what it probably means is that he uh, caused them to receive their covenant with the priesthood. We don't know exactly what form that took, but it might have been a sacrifice. It might have been one of the one of the ordinances of the priesthood that, that we already know about. It may have been a baptism. It may have been... Um, any number of things, but it was an or it says he established an ordinance, so it was one of the ordinances of the priesthood. 
And so Joshua is telling them, get to be worthy for all the blessings that they're going to receive. Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And then what happened on the next day was, everyone was told to keep their distance from the Ark of the Covenant. And there were the, only the priests who were specially called to the task could pick it up and touch, touch it, and in this case, even go near it. So they did so, and then the people were to follow. And Joshua gave them specific instructions. You are to walk into the water. And so they did. And the, the interest, and, and I'm sure you've heard this, this example given many times of faith. But if, if you haven't, uh, it's very, very powerful. It's one of the most wonderful examples in the scriptures Joshua chapter 3, verse 15, the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the water. So they were told to walk across the water, and they're carrying this big, heavy piece of wood and metal containing stone tablets on their shoulders. They're going to sink if they keep walking. And their feet actually touched the water. And they were promised that they'd walk over on dry land, dry ground, but they don't get to see... As, they, as the Israelites did with Moses, they don't get to see the water forming a wall until their feet are dipped in the brim of the water. So think about that faith. They put the, they put the carrying staff on their shoulder and they, begin, they just start walking. And they walk all the way until their feet touch the water. Then instantly, the water was backed up on one side and it dried off on the other. So because this was a river and not the dead uh, the Red Sea, as Moses had parted, but a river that was flowing, one side immediately formed a reservoir. It was as if a dam had been created. And the other side dried up and, and flowed on down river. And they did walk through on dry ground. And the priests stood there in the middle of the water, and the people passed by, and they could see, they all were witnesses, that the ark was sitting there holding the water back. Very powerful image. For all of them, and they, uh, those who had been less than twenty years old, perhaps had, there were perhaps several people, many people who had witnessed the crossing of the Red Sea as children, but many more people who had been born in the wilderness and raised in the wilderness and taught by uh, under the leadership of the prophet Moses to learn that God could do anything and been fed on manna their whole lives. And therefore, they didn't, they didn't see the greatest miracle of Moses. And this is part of the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Joshua. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. Then the people pass over, and, Mo, and Joshua gives, he tells the tribes of Israel, pick one man out of every tribe, and that man has a special job. As he's crossing over the river, he has to bend down and pick up a huge stone. It says he has to put it on his shoulder, the biggest stone you can. And when we get to the other side, we're going to take these stones and put them together. So, um, number one, it's an important symbol that Joshua has the keys of the priesthood, that the mantle has continued, that there's still a prophet, and that prophet will will have the power of God to miraculously intervene. He's looking now for us. And secondly, 
this is a form, this is a symbol of baptism. It's very clear that they're passing through the water. First they had to repent, and then they had to be baptized. So they had to show faith, repentance, and baptism by immersion in the River Jordan. Um, it's obvious that God wants us to see Israel as a person, a symbol of our eternal progression. It's a, it's a likeness of what the process that our spirits have to go through. When they arrive in Israel, first thing they see, and you can, and Jericho is still there, they see the city of Jericho. Um, ancient Jericho is buried in sand, but there is a, a museum or a, a, a tell, as it's called, an archaeological park where you walk in and you see some of the walls have been unearthed, other things are still buried. Um, it's part of the present-day Palestinian Authority. And it's right on the west side of the River Jordan, so it's just across the border from Jordan. And it would it's less than a day's march from the river. So as soon as they crossed, they encounter a fortress of the Canaanites. And it's exactly how the scouts, the ten faithless scouts, reported there's a mighty fortress on all over the place. It's unconquerable. These people are powerful. They have cities. They, they have weapons. Now, what the Israelites do have is numbers. And uh, the citizens of Jericho are, have no desire to, to mess with them. They just want them to go away. And uh, so they close up their walls and they hide safe within their city. And you all know the story. God told Joshua exactly how to conquer the city. And it wasn't that they were going to um, build. He didn't reveal to them, here's how you build a trebuchet. Or, you know, here's, a, here's some chemicals you can mix together. And you can make gunpowder 3,000 years before uh, anyone else. What he said was, walk around the city seven times and blow in your trumpets. And... God fought their battles for them. This was this was the message by the conquering of the city of Jericho. So they they follow to the letter the instructions, and the walls the walls came tumbling down. Uh, trumpets don't blow walls down. That nobody does that. No modern army fights their battles with trumpets, with musical instruments. So this was a powerful lesson to anybody that had been under 20 years old and survived the wandering in the wilderness or had heard the story and had learned the lesson from their parents that uh, the Canaanites were too powerful or too large in stature and had believed these scouts, their report, that God wasn't capable of fulfilling his promise. This was a witness right away on day one. They walk across the water, and then they immediately see a powerful witness that God was on their side and going to, going to be with them. Now, if, if Israel is a symbol of each of us, then each of us should spend a little time 
And maybe you should do this right now. Close your eyes and think about what is your Jericho? What is it that right after you have a holy experience, you know, God, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow God will do wonders among you. Right after that happens, then you meet with an obstacle that you previously thought insurmountable. And it might be that God is going to send you, if you think, oh, these walls are too high, it might be that God will send you back to the wilderness and you'll spend some time there. And generally, this is how God works. He allows us to suffer for as long as we want to. So, uh, slight difference between Israel and modern people, which is they had one chance to go over Jordan, but we really can go back to the wilderness as often as we want. God, We can come over, we can receive God's grace, we can understand His mercy, and we can, we can really feel like He's on our side, and we can approach life with faith. And then we can hit a, an obstacle that God is totally capable of helping us, or I shouldn't say even helping, because it wasn't that God helped the Israelites. God is totally capable of taking out for us, of rebuking for our sakes, as, uh, as Malachi said. He will rebuke the devourer for, for your sakes. But we don't have the faith to do it. And so, therefore, God is willing to let us suffer again if we want to, if that's our choice. Um, I mentioned the 12 men with the stones. So, the men picked up the stones, brought these heavy stones to the, to the west side of Jordan, inside the promised land, and there they built a monument, a huge cairn, or maybe an altar, you might call it out of these 12 stones. And Joshua said, and this was similar to the Passover, because it wasn't just, we're going we're gonna to do something so that we can remember. It was specifically stated in the scriptures. When your children ask you, why do we do this certain thing? You can answer, because God intervened miraculously in our lives, and here's the proof. So why do we celebrate the feast of the Passover every year? Well, because God saved us from the land of Egypt. Why are there these 12 stones on the side of the river? Well, those 12 stones were inside the river, and it just so happened that 12 men picked them up and were able to bring them out on dry ground, and they put them here. It doesn't prove anything to a skeptic. That's the interesting part. Someone who's determined not to believe that that ever happened won't be convinced by 12 stones on the side of a river. But to someone who's willing to to give God the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, God, show me, show me what it is you can do for, in my life. Generally, God wants us to change before he starts intervening. But for someone who's willing to to investigate what God might be willing to do for for him or her. Seeing 12 stones on the side of the river says, well, either 12 stone either 12 people made this story up and everybody believed it and they all lied about what God really is 
or there's something to this. And I'm willing to find out which it is. So that's the importance of remembering, is that the children, like we, like we spoke about in the lesson on remembering, uh, we're always one generation away from forgetting the amazing things God has done in this world. Unless we do little things like this, unless we create these rock cairns or these, these altars where we can make memorials to God's miracles, uh, if, unless we record those events in our, in our journals, unless we tell people about them and bear witness of them, uh, unless we take the sacrament to remember the largest miracle of all. Well, the, the course of the next few years, in fact, uh, the rest of Joshua's life, followed the same pattern that had been followed in Jericho. Every people that the Israelites encountered they followed the commandments of God, and they drove them out and destroyed their nations and, and took possession of the land. And it bears mentioning again that Caleb um, met with the people who had been the, the Anikim, the, the people of the large-necked ones, in other words, the, the very tall ones, the giants, the, the land of the giants, and he had... Previously, 40 years before, he'd borne testimony that the Israelites were capable of conquering them. And this is when Caleb, in the early book of the Joshua, this is when Caleb says, give me this mountain. I, I deserve it. I bore testimony when I was a 45-year-old man that we could conquer it. And now that I'm 85-year-old, I'm still just as strong in the Lord as I was then. And he was. And he received the mountain for his inheritance, and they conquered the Anakim. And uh, that's a fascinating story. And Spencer W. Kimball has a wonderful talk about it. Give me this mountain, the title of it. So for the entire life, the, the lifetime of Joshua, Israel conquers. They, the, uh, Joshua didn't live long enough. They didn't have enough time to conquer the entire land that had been promised to Israel. So his final admonishment, his admonition to the people of Israel was, keep doing the works of Moses. And that was the, these were the same words that, that God had given to Joshua at the beginning of the book of Joshua. First, God said three times, be strong and have a good courage. In other words, it's going to take courage for you to... Do the, do, the, do the right thing and follow my commandments. The easy way out is to not go to war with the people around you, but to live peaceably with them and then uh, let your people intermix. That's going to be the easy way. But I need you to be strong. And Joshua was strong. And at the end of his life, he says, to the people that have followed him his whole life, he said, be strong and of a good courage, the same thing. And he said also, as God had said to him, make sure you fulfill with exactness all of the commandments that I gave to Moses. And unfortunately, we have, we probably have eight or nine examples of people that Joshua conquered within the land of promise. And then we have 10 to 15 examples of, of people that the 
tribes of Israel were unable to conquer. And the promise of God was, if you start intermarrying with them, then I will no longer help you, but they shall be a constant prick in your uh, to to stir you up in remembrance, and they will be um, a torment forever because you didn't you didn't follow the commandment that I'd given you, and that's exactly what happened. The Judah was never able to drive out the rest of the Jebusites, and Dan was never able to come out of the mountains and live in the in the valleys, and Naphtali was never able to drive out the Beer Shemites, and on and on and on. With, with most of the tribes of Israel, they, they didn't fully drive out the people of their land, the land that had been promised them, because it was hard, and because they were an evil influence, and they didn't really want to get rid of all the evil influences. So here we have a couple of interesting parallels into our own lives. Number one, what are the Jerichos in our lives that we are thinking are insurmountable, that we can't, we can't fathom, we can't comprehend the way in which God is going to remove it, but he can. And number two, what are those evil influences that we are refusing to remove, that God is promising at this stage in our lives, yes, I, if you will remove these evil influences, then I have given you a land of promise, the celestial kingdom. If you will not, I will give you the strength. I will make it possible for you to remove all these evil influences. If you will not do it, then these evil influences will be around forever and they'll constantly be a reminder and a torment to you of what you could have had. Now, luckily for us, unlike the nation of Israel, uh, we live on a much shorter time frame and we're able to repent a lot faster. It doesn't take hundreds of years and generations for us to change our behavior. So if we, if we have a, a bad pattern that we've built up of refusing to remove evil influences today, all of that can change tomorrow. That's the beauty of the, the plan of salvation. And in fact, it's, it's well represented symbolically in the, in the law of Moses as well. The ability to change, the ability to repent, to make a new decision, and the overarching importance of choice. Okay, let's talk about the, the covenant that Joshua makes. And you're all familiar with the verse, but the verse usually gets excerpted. So the way we usually hear it is, uh, Choose ye this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, what he says, this is in Joshua chapter 24. Now let's look in verse 14 and 15. Joshua actually begins, Now therefore fear the Lord. And when they say Lord in small caps like that, it's, uh, it's the King James translator's way of, of writing Jehovah. So in the original it was Jehovah. And that's important in this case because he's, dis- he's making a distinction between the God of the Israelites and the other gods of the nations around. So I'll, I'll read Jehovah for this in this verse, in these verses. Now, therefore, fear Jehovah and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye Jehovah. 
And if it seem evil unto you to serve Jehovah, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Jehovah. So, uh, it's, it's almost just a simple platitude the way it's normally quoted. Choose ye this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What he's really saying is, if you think it's such a great idea to worship idols, then pick one. If you're not going to serve Jehovah, then you should, you should be responsible to identify the God that you're going to worship instead. So this is also an important symbol for us. If we have put somebody before God in our lives, we should have the moral courage to at least admit what that is. Have we put materialism? Have we put lust? Have we put pride? Have we put any number of, one of a number of sins before God? If, if so, if it seems like such a great idea to us, if it seemed evil unto us to serve Jehovah, then we should have the courage to at least say, we should choose this day whom we're going to serve. We should say who it is that we think is so powerful or what what our favorite sin is that we think is so great that's going to make us so happy that's not God. And that's exactly what Joshua was doing. He's saying, if you're going to choose to, to walk after some other God, you should choose it today and let me know what it is. Because uh, it's obvious that God has the power to intervene in your lives and no other God does. So go ahead, tell me. Tell me which God it is that you think is so great. And the Israelites responded predictably, no, we, we want to serve Jehovah, we believe. And it's really easy to do that. It's really easy to make, well, I shouldn't say easy, but uh, it's common that, these, that the people that are listening to a prophet bear such powerful testimony. And especially this, is, this chapter, this, these final chapters of Joshua are similar to the book of Deuteronomy in that a prophet is about to die. He's restating his lifetime's worth of teachings and bearing powerful testimony. So that's that's the speech in the middle of which is this quote. And so, of course, they say, no, we want to serve Jehovah. And he makes them repeat it three times, and then he performs his ordinance. And in fact, he has a stone there. And then once again, a stone is called to bear witness. He says, this stone heard everything you said, and we're going to put this stone right here in the land of Shechem, which is sort of central, from top to bottom, central in Israel, and it's along the eastern border. So it's right across Jordan. And he says, here, right here in this land, we're going to put the stone, and it's going to be in a place that everybody knows, and anybody wants to come see it, and we're going to carve on it, and you're going to know that there is a witness to the, to the covenant that you just made, that you said three times you had a chance to serve the other gods, the Amorites that live here in Canaan or the gods on the other side of the Jordan or the ones that your father served in Egypt. There are plenty of gods you can choose from, and you chose this one. So that's a witness forever. So again, we have a powerful example and a symbol in our own lives, which is when we make covenants, there are witnesses. All things witness to us and record, it's recorded in heaven and in earth that we've made these covenants. And so we have to set up memorials to remember. We have to take care to put 
routines in our lives. And that's what the sacrament is. It is a stone set in our lives that we can always go back to and remember that we've made a covenant. Well, we have the the wonderful example of Moses, the wonderful story of Moses, but we have just as powerful an example in Joshua. And it seems almost impossible. Now, Joshua didn't do everything that Moses did. He didn't establish the tabernacle. He didn't go up and, and live 40 days with no food twice on Mount Sinai uh, in order to receive the Ten Commandments. He didn't create the Ark of the Covenant, didn't part the Red Sea, but he did some similar miracles. He actually gained the promised land for the Israelites, and he bore powerful testimony at the end of his life and put Israel under covenant to receive it. So it's important that when a prophet passes, that we receive a witness not only of the works of the previous prophet, which, as Jesus said, it's easy to believe in a prophet who's dead. You all are children of Abraham, but that's not a big deal, because if you were to if you were to be gone, God could raise up from these stones children heirs to Abraham, seed to Abraham. Seed to Abraham is everywhere. People who believe in the prophets of the past are everywhere. The important thing is for people to be able to believe in a prophet of the present because that's the prophet that's calling you to repentance. And that's really the whole point. Are we willing to believe in Moses but not Joshua? Are we willing to believe in Joseph Smith but not Brigham Young or Russell M. Nelson? Are we willing to repent of the sins that other people had in days past and and say, yeah, if I lived in that day, I wouldn't worship stupid idols. I know that idols do nothing for me. Yeah, that was their sin, and it's easy for us to repent of it. What sins are our prophets calling us to repent of? Are we doing that? That's the lesson of the book of Joshua, and I pray that we will. I pray that we will remember that God continues his work with us as he has in in ages past and he will call a new prophet and give us the messages that we need and he will be to that prophet as he was with Moses so I pray that we can follow that prophet and that we can set up our stones to remember that we can put our feet into the brim of the water before it parts we can have that much faith. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.